Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the prevalence of medical errors and what is or is not being done about them. With me to discuss the topic is the Hastings Center's Senior Advisor, Ms. Rosemary Gibson. Rosemary, welcome to the program. Hi, David. Thanks very much for having me. Sure thing. Let's always begin with some background. According to a 1999 IOM report, medical errors cause up to 98,000 hospital deaths annually. In 2000, the Johns Hopkins scholar, Dr. Barbara Starfield, estimated medical errors cause 225,000 deaths per year, making them the third leading cause of death after coronary vascular disease and all-form cancer. Research published in 2011 in Health Affairs estimated 180,000 187,000 deaths were caused by medical errors in 2006. A 2010 Department of Health and Human Services study looking at hospitalized Medicare beneficiaries only found hospital harm contributed to the death of 180,000 Medicare beneficiaries in 2008. Just this past September, research published in the Journal of Patient Safety concluded that between 210,000 and 440,000 patients, patients suffer some type of preventable hospital harm that contributes to their death. Concerning non-fatal errors, also termed adverse events, research also reported in the 2011 Health Affairs showed these events occur in up to one-third of all hospital admissions. By any measure, millions of Americans have died from medical errors, and many millions more have suffered preventable medical injuries in the past few decades. Added to these sobering numbers is the fact that these estimates are the result of occasional studies. There's never been an actual count of how many patients experience harm. No one on a routine basis is counting. In 2009, or nine years after she published her findings, Dr. Starfield noted in an interview, no one from any federal agency had ever contacted her about her work. Again, with me to discuss the topic is Ms. Rosemary Gibson. Rosemary's bio, of course, is posted on the podcast website. So with that, Rosemary, let me begin. First, Maybe more parochially, how did you get into this subject? Well, David, uh, in about 2000, uh, shortly after the Institute of Medicine report came out to Air as Human, I read that report and I thought it was the most stunning piece of work in medicine. It, for the first time, perhaps in the history of medicine, leading physicians and others acknowledged that while so much is good. Is, so much good is done every single day in healthcare. The reality is that too often things go wrong, and tens of thousands of people die every year. So when I saw that report, I said, if we're going to change it, we're going to need more than an IOM report. And I decided to put a human face on it and tell the story of people affected by adverse events, both patients as well as physicians, nurses, and others. And so I wrote the book, The Wall of Silence. And I'll tell you, back then, it, uh, it came out in 2003, I was sort of scared to put it out because back then we didn't, weren't really talking about them as we are now. The publisher put the subtitle as, quote, the untold story of the medical mistakes that kill and injure millions of Americans. I was mortified. And, but wise people counsel, leave it. And the reality is I'm glad I did. So that's how I got into it. And I understand it from the reality of what happens at the bedside, what happens to people when they suffer harm that leads to death, whether it's a failure to rescue in the hospital and children die, or whether it's um, a medication snafu that results in, um, in the death of a patient. 
these are incredible tragedies. So I've entered this world, and it's the most transformative thing I've ever done to understand the real lived experience of patients, their families, as well as people who are involved in these events. Okay, thank you for that explanation. Let me then go to my uh, opening. What's your understanding, or how common or pervasive are medical errors? If you talk to anybody today who's who goes into the hospital, you'll find many people who say that almost every day there's been a, a mistake or a near miss. And, of course, not every mistake or near miss results in harm, but they could. So they are exceedingly common, and the most common form of medical mistakes are medication errors, and that's simply because there, there are so many medications given out every day. So... Um, they're, they're very, very prevalent. And that IOM figure of 98,000 as the top end, now most people, and I believe it's much, much uh, larger than that, the estimates you cited of 210,000 to 400,000 is probably on target. Uh, if you think about, you know, what's an order of, what does that mean? Well, if you've ever been to Arlington National Cemetery, it would we'd have to replace Arlington Cemetery or find a new one every year for all the people who die of preventable adverse events in health care. So you wouldn't or would you uh, dispute Dr. Starfield's calculation that these errors are so common? Uh, oh, they're very, they're very common. And I, I would include in the category not just errors, because the, the original IOM report, the 98,000 figure, that was primarily uh, hospital-based errors. Mm -hmm. It didn't include things like hospital-acquired infections. And a CDC study that came out a number of years ago, that put the figure at about 100,000 deaths from infections. And then we have deaths, you know, in the outpatient setting from medication errors, from contraindications. And, of course, these numbers don't include the harm. Let's uh, take the case of the um, 1 million people that got the so-called new and innovative metal-on-metal metal hip implants that were found, you know, there were shards of metal, cobalt, in people's bloodstream as a result of it, and they've been taken off the market. Those people are harmed, and we don't count that harm. Mm -hmm. And as you said in your opening, no one's counting the mortality. Here we have a leading cause of mortality in this country, and shockingly, we're not counting it. Well, let me, let me push you on that. Why is that? Why is no one? Why is there no routine counting? Well, we count the dead from you know, the wars because we honor those people, uh, even though some politicians may not like that we count them. We count deaths from drunk driving and auto accidents, uh, even though perhaps uh, alcohol makers may would prefer that we don't keep track of drunk driving statistics. But it's the right thing to do. In healthcare, it's a great question. Why don't we? I believe it's because of a very powerful healthcare industry that wants to continue what I call the wall of silence. You know, the reality is that the cat's out of the bag. People know that errors occur, and I, I think it's time for the industry to own up to it. And we have to start counting this leading cause of preventable mortality in the United States. So per the medical establishment's response, um, you're well aware that in 2005 or five years after the IOM report came out, uh, Dr. Berwick, the former CMS administrator and the much-known <clears throat> patient safety scholar Lucian Leap concluded that, quote-unquote, progress had been frustratingly slow. In 2011, the editor of Health Affairs, quote-unquote, overall progress has been agonizingly slow. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a good reason for that. Uh, first of all, let me say that there 
have been pockets of really great improvement. So, for example, there are healthcare facilities and hospitals that have had dramatic uh, reductions in ventilator-associated pneumonia. There have been um, hospitals that have worked really hard to reduce central line-associated bloodstream infections. And all of this takes an enormous amount of work, and we should honor and respect that. But I think there's something else happening in healthcare today that is explaining why healthcare, and I'm, I think this is true, healthcare is actually becoming more unsafe. And I'll tell you why. We have a, a system that we know has already been riddled with errors and opportunities for mistakes. But what's happened in the last um, five to ten years, and it's been accelerating, is that we're asking physicians and nurses to work at a much faster pace to meet so-called productivity targets. So recently I showed the I Love Lucy um, chocolate factory video. Yes, yes. And this, um, this shows um, uh, Lucy on a, with a conveyor belt, conveyor and, belt. And, and there are chocolates going through, and they're supposed to wrap them and they're doing fine, and suddenly the pace starts increasing, and they can't handle it, and some of the chocolates are just going through. The boss is going to come in in a few minutes, so what do they do? They start stuffing them down their shirts and in their hats and in their mouths because they can't keep up. So when the boss comes out, everything looks fine. It looks like they can handle it. And so what does the boss do? They speed up the pace. This is what's happening in healthcare. This is why we're reading articles about why physicians and nurses are so burned out. And what's driving the volume? I wrote another book uh, called um, The Treatment Trap to describe this phenomenon called overtreatment. People are getting too many tests, too many surgeries, too many drugs. Why is that? Because healthcare is big business. Income, yes. It's not just doctors and hospitals. It's the companies that have to keep selling stuff, the device makers, the drug companies, the equipment manufacturers. Another reason is not just the volume. I gave a talk recently to a group of physicians, and I said, why is it that airline pilots would never allow equipment to come into the, an airplane cockpit that hasn't been thoroughly tested for safety and interoperability, you know, the human factors um, mm -hmm. uh, notion? But physicians, they allow defective products and equipment. Look at these external defibrillators, you know, to shock someone in case uh, you know, when their heart stops. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to turn off uh, the machine when you want to actually shock someone. So why do we allow this? So we have multiple factors, higher volume, more patients, let's do more. That's the mantra in healthcare today, volume, volume, volume. And the fact that we have all these you know, new pieces of equipment coming in every, every year, new infusion pumps, we think innovation, it's new, it's better, when in fact it's not always true. And plus, in the hospital, more patients are more complex. Right, the, we have sicker patients. Yes, and this is the perfect storm for why healthcare is becoming more unsafe. I have come to the conclusion that we have made it We are making it impossible for the most dedicated physicians and the most dedicated nurses and technicians and pharmacists to be able to do it right. I had a pharmacist uh, tell me just last week, "How is it we can expect a pharmacist to fill 500 prescriptions in one day?" They have their quotas. Mm -hmm. We're making it impossible. Why? Because the demands of volume. Because healthcare is huge business. That's what's driving it. 
Okay, let's ask, let me ask you rather than about the federal government's response. I did happen to look at, for example, what bills are proposed this um, Congress, and I can't say I was too surprised, but there are really only two or three concerning patient safety, and one bill amongst these uh, few, the Medical Checklist Act, actually has just one co-sponsor. So obviously, uh, from the Congress's perspective or the Congress's effort, we're not, uh, cannot be hopeful. CMS, of course, has their Partnership for Patients effort, uh, which is ostensibly a patient safety initiative. So they're at least attempting to address this issue. And per your comment about hospital-acquired infections, one of their goals is to reduce by 40% uh, by the end of this year or next month compared to data mm-hmm. from 2010. So they're addressing it. But what's your overall sense of the federal government's response or how adequately or not are they uh, trying to address this issue? You're right, David. The Partnership for Patients has been an effort that's engaged uh, some good people that are are trying to make it better. But the federal government can offer that, but it's really up to the uh, places that provide health care to pick up that opportunity and and do something with it. And there are health care facilities that are, in fact, taking advantage of that opportunity. But the ball really is in the court of people who lead these health care organizations and admittedly, they're under increasingly financial pressure, under increasing financial pressure. But a lot of them, to be honest, at the top leadership, safety is not on the top of their radar. In fact, a recent study that was um, published in Kaiser Health News, it showed that uh, CEO compensation was based on uh, patient satisfaction metrics and, of course, financial metrics. Quality and safety wasn't really a, a big issue. And so no wonder it's not top of mind. And so if it's not top of mind there, it's not going to get done. What areas, well, let me press you then. What areas do you think where, are there areas, rather, where you think we are making uh, substantive um, uh, progress across the board more than just, as you know, there are some isolated instances where there's been success? Are there any? Across the board? Mm Mm-hmm. It's really uh, tough to point out where there has been dramatic improvement and where we've, where we've demonstrated that people are alive because of safety interventions. That, that's a tough one. Again, there have been reductions in things like ventilator-associated pneumonia, and that prevents people from having a lot of suffering. There have been hospitals that have implemented rapid response systems to prevent people from deteriorating while they're in the hospital. It's called failure to rescue. But across the board, these events still happen. I think what needs to be done is we have to stop the, um, uh, during the financial crisis, um, one of the Citibank leaders says, we'll keep dancing until the music stops. Well, in healthcare, the music is the money. And until we um, have some changes in public policy that limit the incentives for volume, then we're still we're going to be in this situation. Then, of course, until the music stops and the money runs out. The other thing I'll mention, though, is that with so much attention on the Affordable Care Act and coverage and where health care organizations feel as if they're going to fit in this new market, I worry that patient safety is falling lower and lower and lower on the agenda of health care leadership. That's another factor that's driving it underground. So crowded out. Yes, exactly. Because there's so much uh, that so, so much many things that are calling people's attention. But you would think in an industry that is life and death, 
that safety would be job one. And I think it's fair to say that even now, after all these years since the Institute of Medicine report, it's not. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you one specific as it relates to federal government response, and that's the Department of Justice. What's your understanding uh, regarding uh, any activity from the DOJ? To what extent have they addressed this issue, if at all? I've looked, and I honestly could not find any initiative or effort. Well, one of the uh, topics in safety that I've tried to bring to the fore is the reality of overtreatment, that people are having unnecessary cardiac surgery, mm -hmm. back surgery, many other procedures, prostatectomy and tests and so on. And it's a huge safety issue. It's not just you know, over-treatment and a financial issue or a fraud issue. This is a serious safety issue. Just outside Washington, D.C., to give an example of what I mean, there was a hospital that was found to have performed cardiac, uh, uh, done cardiac stent procedures mm -hmm. on 583 people who had no blockage that warranted it. We're putting people at risk. So we are seeing uh, selective cases where the Department of Justice has said that we're going to come after you. Now, they don't have the resources and the manpower to go after all the overtreatment, uh, but there have been cases where they've prosecuted, um, uh, hospital, uh, prosecuted facilities. Often these are civil cases. They're not criminal cases, although there was a case uh, in the, on the eastern shore of Maryland where a physician went to jail for um, performing unnecessary cardiac procedures. The challenge is this is so widespread, you don't, you know, it doesn't take much to pick up a newspaper, whether it's the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, to hear about um, places where back surgeries are being performed at high rates that bear no relation to the possible epidemiology of a population. So the Department of Justice has intervened, but you know, ultimately these, um, uh, these cases are very political. If you have a you know local a senator or a congressman that calls up and wants to call off the investigation, that can happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I've seen insofar as the Department of Justice getting involved. I think we need more of it, and I think uh, very high-level people um, need to bear serious consequences for overtreatment. We're harming people, and in some cases people are dying because we're doing so many surgeries and tests on people where it's not warranted. This is adding to mortality. We don't have a count of it, but it's a very serious problem. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you about uh, efforts at the state level. A few years ago, you're well aware that there are efforts in state legislatures to either voluntarily or uh, make mandatory patient safety reporting. That effort seems to have cooled. About slightly more than half of states require some reporting on patient safety. How they report has always been questioned whether the quality is adequate. What's your sense of activity at the state level? Well, uh, back about 10 years ago, Consumers Union started a Stop Hospital Infection campaign. And that's where members of the public who had experienced hospital-acquired infections got legislation passed in now it's 28 states requiring that there be public reporting of hospital-acquired infections. And this is, wasn't a Democratic issue, wasn't a Republican issue, because hospital infections are an equal opportunity event. They affect people from all walks of life. And we, we, we saw and we continue to see you know, public members who are very smart, have felt that they've had to become smart, are serving on these committees to keep pushing on the transparency agenda. 
So, for example, out in Washington State in the past uh, couple of months, there was an effort by the healthcare industry to um, have less reporting around infections, but uh, public interest prevailed, and now hospitals have to continue reporting infections, say, by procedure, by, uh, for example, those people having hip replacements. So infections by procedure are staying on the map. But it's, as you know, it's this type of advocacy. Um, there isn't money for it. People do it because they really believe in it. Uh, so it's um, very grassroots, and we need more of it. But uh, overall, um, there is a pushback from the industry to um, cut back on transparency. No question about it. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a continued battle. So with all this, then, let me ask you, what's, what would you prescribe, no pun, on um, going forward? I mean, what, what reasonably can be done, say, in the next three to five years uh, to, particularly per your point about uh, we're becoming less safe or uh, the industry is becoming, uh, putting patients more at risk? Well, like anything else, if we want to tackle a big challenge, which this is, it takes leadership, and it takes leadership at a very top level. So here we are rolling out health care reform with all of, the, all of its many issues. The question will be, all right, people will have their insurance card, Some, many uninsured people you know, having access perhaps for the first time, and they'll be entering a health care system that is not as safe as we would like it to be. I know there are only so many issues that um, a government can tackle at once, but um, there needs to be some brave souls who will stand up and um, and say we need to make it safer. You know, one of the compelling areas, um, ProPublica did a story on the on Medicare Part D prescribing for older adults and how so much of that prescribing is, um, by any account, is so medically inappropriate can't be warranted by the nature of the population, you know, the prescribing of antipsychotics mm-hmm. to older adults. This is horrific what we're doing. Uh, yes, so, so I, I did a podcast several months ago. The FDA testified before the Congress it's 15,000 deaths a year. And, and who's, who's minding the store here? Nobody. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's going to take um, what I call a spinal transplant. It's going to take people who uh, will stand up. Um, but that will require public support and uh, for people to realize that we have a very serious problem. I will say, when I started doing this work you know, 13 years ago, nobody was talking about it. But now, unfortunately, because so many people have been adversely affected by um, health care harm, they're doing things individually. But there has to be, um, you know, I say foundations and, um, and philanthropy need to support the organizing of these efforts, just like we had for the environmental movement for drunk driving. And here in healthcare, I call it we have a too big to fail industry. And what's happening is these are you know, privatized gains and socialized losses. And so it's going to take advocacy from an informed public to say uh, the harm needs to stop. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry to say, Rosemary, uh, we're at our time boundary. So with that sobering note, we'll have to conclude. So let me say thank you again for your time in this discussion. It's been very productive and helpful. Oh, thank you very much. And the wall of silence, I just want to let everybody know that we donate proceeds uh, to patient groups because they taught us so much. And it's on Amazon, and it's for a good cause, and the treatment trap is about overtreatment, and people really need to understand that reality in healthcare today. Okay, thank you again, Rosemary. Great. The website's treatmenttrap.org. Thanks so much. Thank Take you. care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.